Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Jarvis Williams about the really complicated conversation when it comes to race, ethnicity, the Bible, and how we think about those issues today. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Jarvis. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. You can also find out about their commentary series, the Christian Standard Commentary, many other study Bibles, including the Ancient Faith Study Bible, the CSB Study Bible, and many more. Again, you can check that out at csbible.com. And now my conversation with Jarvis Williams. But first, no big deal. All right, Jarvis Williams is here. Jarvis, thanks for being on Church Grammar today. Thank you. So good to be with you. We've uh, we've emailed back and forth for years. You're working on a commentary in the series that I'm that I'm working on, and we've talked a lot. So uh, this is the first time I think we've seen each other face to face. So glad to have an excuse to to talk to you face to face. Yeah, it's a joy, man. I appreciate uh, those emails about the commentary and all the help you've been with that, and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, man. All right, so we're going to talk today about your book, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, A Biblical Theology of the People of God from Baker. Uh, One of the things I appreciate about you and something I've told you offline as well is in this really, really contentious conversation that's happening in the church right now about race, um, I feel like you have been one of the most balanced voices, one of the most clear and helpful voices. You know, obviously, issues like this can fall into the extremes on both ditches really quickly. And I feel like you've always done a really good job of, of pulling the things together. You've encouraged me over the years uh, from a distance, just watching whether it's YouTube videos or reading your stuff. So what I want to do today really is talk through the book and, and try to encourage people to go buy it uh, and to listen to you on these topics. Uh, at least in my perspective, I think you've been really helpful on that. So maybe we could start with just the title right? Redemptive kingdom diversity, you're using this type of language really clearly. So maybe just lay out a big, big picture idea of why you're using this term and what you're trying to get at in the book. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Well, I first heard the phrase uh, kingdom diversity from a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Walter Strickland, who teaches at Southeastern Seminary. And, And Walter has done good work in this area. And for me, that phrase was helpful because it, 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 it grounds so this conversation in, I think, the God's plan of, of salvation for his people and this unified vision that, uh, that God has in Christ to reconcile all things to himself. But, but I also wanted to, to pick up on that phrase and then make it explicitly clear in, in the work that I'm doing that this work is, is redemptive. I think with the phrase kingdom diversity, the way, it was work, the way it's worked out, uh, by my by my friend Dr. Strickland, it, redemption is assumed in that. But I wanted to make it very explicit in what I was doing that this this work uh, that I'm trying to put forward is grounded in Jesus's uh, death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead, and that although there is a problem, sin and sin creates all sorts of problems. That uh, ultimately, for the Christian, uh, we need to think redemptively about. Uh, God's plan to to unify all things and all people in Christ. So I wanted to make it clear from the beginning to the end of my book that I'm not talking about diversity for the sake of diversity, and I'm not talking about anything goes in terms of diversity. I'm talking about uh, how I understand God's redemptive plan in Christ to accomplish this vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption in Jesus, which invades this present evil age right now, and gives us the supernatural resources to pursue uh, redemptive love for our neighbors as ourselves, as we live in anticipation of the future kingdom that is yet yet to come. So I wanted to make it very explicit that there's redemption here. And, and, and with the word redemption, there's also hope so that we don't have to, it, 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 we don't have to be, be uh, victims of the grievance industry, right? Mm-hmm. We point out the problems that exist, but we point, toward the solution and the hope that we have as Christians in Jesus Christ. And I think that phrase, redemptive kingdom diversity, tries to capture that, that hope that we have in Jesus. Yeah, it's good. So one of the things you set out kind of early on and really ends up, I think, 
working out uh, throughout the book. So you kind of go through each chapter of a biblical theology of the people of God and, you know, throughout scripture. Mm -hmm. And you start out by saying, you know, where, where do we see this begin? Well, it's uh, with the covenant with Abraham. It's this call to Israel. You have this sort of idea of a, a multi-ethnic people of God really from the beginning. So maybe just talk through that a little bit, just the, the Abrahamic covenant and sort of how this begins to play out biblically and theologically in this uh, multi-ethnic church that we're looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, I think it, the way I understand at least the, the 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 Old Testament story leaning into the New Testament is is that from the very beginning it was God's design and intention to um, to have a, a unified and a diverse kingdom, a community of people. And He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, and the assumption is is that their multiplicity would create different different kinds of people who will be who will be um, um, the vice regents on earth and and that when we see sin enter creation and and sin disrupts the the current order of things then god doesn't god doesn't run to plan b but he unfolds for us this the, the way in which this ultimate vision that he outlines i think in the garden is going to work out it's going to work out by means of him crushing the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. And we get this language of seed popping up in various places of the Old Testament. And then with the Abrahamic story, we see God coming out of nowhere, it seems, to talk to, Ab to this man named Abram. And he tells him he's going to give him land, seed, a universal blessing in chapter 12. And he repeats that in other places in chapter 15 and 13 and elsewhere in Genesis. And then the, the universal blessing promised to Abraham uh, in the seed language, we we get glimpses of that promise being realized in the Old Testament. Abraham gets a promised child. He gets he gets descendants and he gets offspring. By the time we get to the end of the of the Abrahamic narrative, we see that that Israel, the, the Abraham's offspring, is still waiting for that promise to be realized. And so, as we journey into the New Testament narrative, the New Testament story, we see someone like the Apostle Paul making the point that. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and that those of us who are in Christ in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that we are seed of Abraham. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he makes the point that all the, the families of the earth are blessed in Abraham by means of the justification of the Gentiles. So the, so, the, so the means by which these promises are being realized to Abraham regarding this, this multi-ethnic um, this this universal vision to bring about these uh, give Abraham this multiplicity of offspring is by means of Jews and Gentiles who are justified by faith in Christ because of this this Jewish Messiah Jesus Christ who died and resurrected from the dead so that both Jews and Gentiles could receive uh, the Spirit by faith which Paul identifies in Galatians three fourteen as the blessing of Abraham and of course other places in the New Testament. Uh, the Gospels, the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation particularly outlines this this very powerful statement in chapter five that 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 Jesus died for some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and so that the 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 land promise and the the promise regarding these offspring are realized in the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, and then the land promise is realized in the inheritance of this new heavens and new earth, Galatians six fifteen, Revelation twenty one. And 22. So it seems as though from beginning until to the end of the, of the biblical storyline is that God is, has always intended to have this, uh, this multi-ethnic diverse people who have a uh, variety of different ethnicities, but they are one people filled with many different kinds of people. And their, their focus is, is centered on Jesus Christ and this new world and this, and this new heaven that we inherit. So when we think about, you know, the, the continuity and discontinuity between the two Testaments, you know, you've got kind of the, the old arguments about dispensationalism and covenant theology and all that. I guess they're not old, they're still around uh, in some places. But, um, you know, there, there is also a conversation about, you think about Israel taking care of foreigners who come into their midst, having a way to care for the poor, these kinds of things. So how do, you, how do you think through the sort of continuity and discontinuity between what Israel is doing as the people of God and then how this sort of gets turned into or at least uh, builds toward this idea of the Gentiles being fully included? How do you, how do you think through how those things mm. fit together? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I try to, to make clear in the book is that my, my thesis uh, does not in any way, shape, or form, advocate for a, a supersessionism idea or replacement theology idea. Um, I, I reject 
I reject those those ideas. I think what I see in, in Scripture is this, as you said, this continuity and discontinuity, and that even in the Old Testament story, we see we see symbols, we see pictures that that God has a vision to bring about a uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and and that you have God promising a a day when when Jews and Gentiles will be a people that that they will be a people as Jews and as Gentiles. And I think when you see statements like uh, Isaiah making these promises, like Isaiah 53, for example, that the suffering servant's going to come and he's going he's to die uh, for many. He's going to justify the many. And you have these, these promises given to us in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, regarding this new creation that's coming, a new Jerusalem. And we can see even in the, in the prophet Isaiah that this new Jerusalem is, is not just Jerusalem, but it's, it's a whole world that, that is coming and that that world is filled with those who are redeemed by the servant, uh, the new Israel, if you will. And, and that will be a, a group, be groups of Jews and Gentiles and, uh, who are redeemed by this servant. And when we get into the New Testament, we see, in fact, very clearly in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, for example, that this new world is is the, the is defined as the New Jerusalem, and it's inherited by Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So, so what I see in the in the in the two covenants, the, the discontinuity is is that the people of God are marked off no longer in the new covenant by means of Torah, but they're marked off by means of faith, the Spirit, and uh, by by faith in Christ and the Spirit. And, and that the people of God consists of Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles um, and as Jews who are trusting in Christ and they're transformed Jews and they're transformed Gentiles in Christ. So that's sort of the, the discontinuity, if you will. But there's also continuity in that, that, that God is always intended to bring about this, this new covenant, that he's always intended to bring about uh, the redemption of his people. And uh, the, the boundary markers of Israel are extended to include uh, Gentiles in Christ. So these promises, and as I mentioned, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, Ezekiel 36 and 37, promises us that God is going to do something not just for Israel, but for the whole cosmos uh, in the transformation of the heart. And, and in Isaiah 53, uh, in, the, in the death and resurrection of the servant and in Jeremiah 31 and the, and, the, and the writing of God's law in the hearts of his people. And he's going to circumcise our hearts, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and other places as well. So there's discontinuity. The people of God are marked off uh, not by Torah, but, but by means of faith in Christ. But there's also continuity. It's always been God's plan to bring about this, this redemption of a people. And the people uh, consists of Jews and Gentiles in, in Christ, marked off not by circumcision or Torah, but marked off by Christ and faith and the Spirit. Yeah, and so a language that you've you've used a lot um, is the language of ethnicity, right? And you've done that on purpose. You talk about this in the book, that there's a distinction between the words race and ethnicity. Uh, I think it's it's been pretty easily demonstrably shown at, shown at this point that race is a, is a more modern construct, that there's a lot of baggage that comes with that particularly in uh, colonialization and things like that. So as you're thinking about those two you know, words, maybe just talk through why they're distinct, why it's important to distinguish them. And then, and then maybe just kind of the implications of that in terms of how do we deal with the fact that uh, race is a moder more modern construct, but yet it is the social reality that we live in. So just kind of talk through mm -hmm. that, those distinctions and, and how to think through that today. Yeah, it's good. Good questions. Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things I try to do early on in the book is define my categories and, and what I mean when I say uh, ethnicity and what I mean when I say race. And numerous scholars have have demonstrated that that race, as it has developed in the colonies and in the American context, was a word that was connected to this idea of racial hierarchy. It was connected to, to racism. It was connected to the dehumanization of, uh, of enslaved Africans and other indigenous peoples. And, and then that word carries with it this, um, this both individual, but also this sort of systemic uh, reality where there's a power play that's taking place where, where those who are constructing uh, race and constructing uh, a racial hierarchy based on an ideology that I would say of, of racism that uh, you know, in our context, Europeans who were responsible for this sort of 
racialization are setting up uh, a a structure where, in that context, the enslaved African indigenous people were at the bottom of the of the so-called racial racial hierarchy. And and what we know from scholars is is that is that there's no such thing as a as a biological race, by which I mean there's a human race. We know this from the Bible, there's a human race. But there's no such thing as a superiority or an inferiority uh, groups of people within the human race. And, and so when we talk about race in our context, it's a, it's a social construct, it's a fiction, it's not real, it's, it's based on really lies and perceptions. Whereas ethnicity in our, in our uh, context today has much more to do with uh, geography, uh, dialect, values, culture. It, it, has no, it has nothing to do with skin color, those sorts of things where, you know, race has, has also this uh, characteristic attached to it where a, a person is, is, is labeled to be a part of a particular race based on skin color and those sorts of things. Whereas with ethnicity, that's not the case. You can have people who have the same shade of skin, but they share different ethnicities. Um, you know, my mother-in-law is, her skin is much darker than mine, but she is a, a different ethnicity than I am. Um, but we, but, but both of our skin complexions are darker than yours, but my mother-in-law still, and I share different ethnicities. And so when I talk about ethnicity, I think that's more like what the Bible's talking about, even though still there's not a direct one-to-one correlation between what the Bible is saying when it talks about the tribes and tongues of peoples and nations. And what we talk about when we talk about ethnicity, but I do think what we what we mean by ethnicity is more like what the Bible means than when we talk about race. If that if that makes sense, so that race and ethnicity are two separate, entirely separate, different categories. One, uh, both are social constructs, but one is real and the other one is not. Race is not real, but ethnicity is. And so, one of the things I would say then is 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 that is that when we think about about the issue of, of race, race is not a positive term. It carries with it this idea of inferiority, superiority, racism, so that so that one of the things that, that I'm trying to do in the book is make the point that is that the Bible knows of no of no different races. It knows of, of human beings within the human race, but the Bible does seem to uh, speak to different ethnicities, tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. And so in this conversation, then, when we're talking about uh, ethnicity, we're, we're talking about the fact that it's God's vision and God's plan to bring about this, this redemption of tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. And, and that, uh, practically speaking, one of the things we've got to do, I think, is, is make sure when we're trying to engage in this conversation is that we don't assume the construct of race is right. But the problem is we've inherited all these structures and all these ideas and, and, and established entire societies and, and laws historically based on this false construct of race. Right. And so then in my view, part of what, part of what God in Christ is doing is helping us rightly understand via Jesus's redemption and his death and resurrection, what it means for us to be fully human and he's restoring that humanity so that we don't um, conduct ourselves in ways that are antithetical to uh, the what it means to be one new humanity in Christ uh, but we conduct ourselves in this one new humanity where we're living as this unified people filled with many different tongues and tribes and peoples um, but we are seeking to unify each other in Christ through the gospel and so then practically as we live in a real world where you have entire communities in the United States that have been isolated, segregated, and those communities still exist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of this false construct of race, uh, one of the responsibilities we have as, as Christians, I think, is, is to say, hey, we didn't create this problem. Uh, those of us who are living today didn't create this problem. Uh, we can't ignore the realities that race exists, but we have to correct our thinking and think redemptively to recognize that there is no such thing as an inferior or superior race. Uh, we're all human, and in Christ Jesus, we are restored humans. So, therefore, we got to think creatively about how to love our neighbors as ourselves in ways that that honor God, 
and that reflect the redemptive power of the gospel and that seek to, to use some of the languages, as some scholars have said, that seek to really deracialize the the societies in which we live by viewing people not as races of people, but as image bearers whom God has redeemed in Christ or whom God will redeem in Christ. It's part of how I would sort of address the question. Yeah. So, you know, we think about the, the reality that we live in, you know, whether it's um, police shootings, you know, it's, you mentioned segregated neighborhoods that still exist, redlining, it's still very real. There's still, you know, housing market, you know, I, I had a realtor tell me one time that there were still vestiges mm. of um, mm. racism, even in how to sell a house and what neighborhood you can do it in. You know, these kind mm. of things. Mm. How, how do you think through the idea of, of racial solidarity when you're in a world in which this is a real thing, right? So you see, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, some sort of, of racism that, that's enacted in the world and you see it happen. Is there a level in which you should still feel, um, you know, as an African-American man or somebody who, or, or as people who come from, um, you know, th their family were enslaved and things like that. How do you think through the solidarity type stuff and just those kind of bigger pictures uh, because of the world that we live in? How do we engage that? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think for me personally, I think one of the best places to start in this conversation is in your own local community, your own local church, your own, where you, where you, where you reside. Uh, and, and for me, I want to, my, my, my church context is one where the church is in an underserviced community. The, the community is traditionally a black community that uh, has suffered historically because of some of these things you just mentioned. Um, and and the, and and one of the things I want to do is how can I how can I be a a gift to the community that uh, in which I worship? Well, I want to bring resources to the community. I don't want to be one who's a taker from the community, but a giver to the community. I want to I want to participate uh, through my church as much as I can, providing opportunities for underprivileged uh, kids, for example, in that community, maybe to have some tutoring through our church. We have, for example, in our church. We provide resources for kids who are underserviced to come and be tutored by people who are qualified to tutor them. We provide opportunities in our, through our church for um, uh, residents in the community and also in the city who don't have uh, access to certain medical opportunities. We, we have uh, nonprofits that we work with uh, and, and one particular nonprofit that we work with that provides medical clinics uh, through our church uh, a couple of times a year where uh, where medical professionals will volunteer their time and come in and provide basic things like blood pressure checks, uh, sugar checks, eye exams, uh, dental dental care uh, for people who just simply don't have uh, resources for whatever reasons. And and we do that with the we do that with the redemptive eye. Uh, we also provide opportunities in our communities where people who have for, for whatever reasons, are underserviced and don't have resources to, to provide for their kids during during the holiday season. So what we'll do as a church is, is we'll buy gifts uh, uh, from various local st stores and we'll bring them to the church and then we'll bring families into the church who are invited to our church and we will uh, assign members from our church to be advocates with those families and we'll walk them through the different stations of the church and they have opportunities to shop for their children and and we don't give them a handout, but rather we give them the opportunity to um, feel dignified and to feel empowered. And we will they can buy a bicycle for their kid, for example, a very nice bicycle for a dollar or, or whatever. And so that's the way that we can seek to restore sort of dignity. Job fairs as well in these communities where you have um, – underserviced communities, people who want to work, but for some reason they don't have access. You know, there are ways in which uh, churches can think creatively and wisely in their local communities to help think redemptively and live redemptively uh, and, and to build up those communities with an eye toward, yeah, pointing people to Jesus Christ, absolutely, and, and helping them understand the reason why we do this is because we love Jesus and we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we also want to see as best as we can as as Christians in our local communities and where our churches are, we want to see these communities experience restoration as best as we can do that. And one way we can do that is is help um, people to to, to, to to feel empowered to to be dependent upon the Lord, but uh, also empowered to to 
to have opportunities to provide for their most basic basic needs and, and wherever we can do that we want to do that so that's one way i think we can think about it is that we want to approach how can we individually responsibly use our resources and our privileges to help those in underserved communities um, and it's it's much easier to do that if you're in a con- if you're in a community where there you're in a church community where there is an underserved community that you can help help uh, in in a way that's redemptive. Yeah, that's a good word. So I think it is easy. I mean, it's easy every day. You can turn on the news and see a million things that happen far outside of your control in your community, and those are you know heartbreaking and frustrating and all kinds of things. But I think that call to to do something locally is a big deal. You know, it's, it's in our Twitter world, for example, if you're not yelling on mm. Twitter, you're, you're not actually doing mm. anything, you know? Um, and there's yeah, many things that, yeah. you know, I had a conversation with somebody a little while back about this on Twitter who sent me a direct message and basically said, you know, you used to talk more vocally about race issues on social media and now you don't like what's going on. And I said, well, actually part of what's going on is I'm, I'm trying to actually do it in real life and not just talk about it online, you know? So, um, you know, the the church that, the church that we were in, and this is, this is kind of leading to another question, you know, the church that that I was in in Nashville, particularly before we moved to Cedarville, which is middle of cornfields in Ohio, you know, it's, it's not very diverse uh, area where we are now, except the university has some, uh, but in Nashville, our church was, uh, in Murfreesboro, right outside of Nashville, probably in the most diverse, um, part of Murfreesboro. Um, and so we would always, you know, try to partner with, uh, there's a couple of historically black churches in town that we would partner with mm. to do VBS together mm. in the community. Mm. Um, we tried to do a lot of education, uh, of our people on the history of race in America and things like that. And it just, it, for me as a pastor, it always felt really daunting to try to figure out how do we, how do we, how do we get active locally while also trying to acknowledge that there's all these things that are working against us. Right. So when we think about kind of this big picture of, on the one hand, you say in the book, look, sin is the problem, right? Sin is in all of our hearts. Uh, everybody, regardless of your ethnicity, race, whatever category you want to use, we're all sinners. On the other hand, you want to say, you know, that that there are unjust laws. There are things that work against us. Um, you know, I think of Martin Luther King's kind of famous quote, uh, it may be true that a law cannot make a man love me, but it can't stop him from lynching me. And I think that's a good mm. thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so mm. how do we think through that, mm. right? The, the sort of distinction between... Um, what is going on in the government and in laws and all those kind of injustices while also thinking about sin? How do, how do we do that? Because uh, this is a very long answer, but I'm, I'm starting to, I'm going to start preaching if I'm not careful, but you've got the sort of, uh, you got the sort of one side of uh, uh, social justice just is the gospel. And then you've got your people on the other side that say, just preach the gospel, stop talking about all that social justice stuff, right? So how do mm-hmm. we, give us some categories for just how to think through Yes, we're all sinners, but we do live in a world that's broken in, in government and laws and other things. So just how do we how do we work through that as pastors and as churches in our various communities? Mm. Yeah, it's good. Well, one of the things I say in the book is, is that uh, when we think about God's redemptive plan in Christ, I think we should think about it at least in three ways, which is vertical, horizontal, and, and cosmic. So that vertically, Jesus died on the cross to to make sinners right with God and uh, provide forgiveness of sins and and uh, regeneration, so on and so forth. And then horizontally, God in Christ has worked in order to to bring about this this relational unity that was broken because of sin. And then cosmically, Jesus is also working to bring about the restoration of creation. And the reason why it seems to me that that this vertical and horizontal cosmic redemption is are, is is important is because um, sin is original that we are conceived in sin, but when we we also commit acts of sin and and so therefore it's a personal transgression that we commit. But sin is also described in the Bible as cosmic as a cosmic power. And Paul in Romans chapter six, for example, talks about sin as an evil tyrant that enslaves. And one of the things that that uh, that we see about sin, therefore, is is that sin, because it is both individual and cosmic, it, it is it is therefore it could be it could be structural, it could be systemic. We even see this in the Old Testament, right? We see these these uh, the whole nation of Israel is there's a systemic problem of sin. This is one reason why they go into exile yeah. it, it, because of their their sin. And so then, yes, the solution to this, to the vertical, horizontal, and cosmic problem is God's vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption in Jesus. And so, yes, we, we preach the gospel, certainly, we apply the gospel, but we must also look around the world in which we live and recognize that we live in an already not yet reality. 
uh, that we've already tasted this redemption in part, but it's not yet fully realized. And sin is still operating as an evil tyrant. And, and one of the things that we as Christians, I think, need to recognize is in the real world where there's still uh, sin and sin is still ruling and reigning, there are, are manifest manifestations of sin in systemic ways. And, and so what I want to do is not ignore the systemic ways in which sin works, but neither do I want to say there's systemic sin under every rock, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what I want to do is, is ask myself, um, how can I, as an individual Christian who is seeking to be an emblem and a signpost of this redemption that we have in Jesus, live in a spirit-empowered and redemptive way, both in loving my neighbor as myself and also... Um, recognizing that there are problems that laws in the past uh, systemically created that still exist in the present, even though the laws have changed. And one of those clear examples is the example that that we, uh, uh, we can see when we talk about housing and, and redlining, that you have these, these systemic structures put in place in the past that kept blacks and other people of color from having access to certain loans and living in certain communities. And they created a whole isolated, segregated community uh, that didn't allow blacks and other people of color to, to have uh, opportunity to transfer wealth because of systemic laws of racism. And those communities were created and, and, and they were communities that became eventually drug infested and bad schools and all the rest. And even though the laws changed, that the the there are some of those communities that still exist today. So then, as a Christian, uh, I, I look around in this real world and say, "Yeah, well, you want to preach the gospel, certainly, but you have people in these communities who who need an education, who need healthcare, who need all sorts of resources." So then, going back to what I was saying earlier about the individual responsibility of churches, if you're if you're a congregation is in a community that is under service like that, then the congregation has no choice but to think creatively about how both to preach the gospel to save and win souls, but also to help provide uh, uh, very practical skills for people to be able to flourish in their humanity because they are living in a, in a, in a real world where some people have inherited problems for no fault of their own. Uh, and those problems are problems that that exist because of systemic sin that still impacts us today. Now, just to clarify here, uh, when I talk about systemic racism and systemic sin, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying uh, that there's systemic racism or systemic sin under every rock. But but my point is is that that there are examples where uh, the the systemic structures of the past still impact the present. And, and so a Christian who is thinking holistically about redemption needs to, to think carefully and wisely about how to both preach to the soul and see people converted. But also, uh, if you're in these underserviced communities, you have opportunities to, to, to live redemptively by restoring these communities that have been broken. Now, Christians, aren't, Christians and churches aren't, aren't the government, and we, we, we don't have the kind of resources that the government have. But we do have uh, opportunities to think about how to, to, to live redemptively and restoratively in, in communities that have been broken because of systemic sin and for false uh, reasons, no fault of their own. Uh, this doesn't in any way, shape, or form minimize the importance of personal responsibility. As I say in the book, even if you're born in, a, in, a, in, a, in an underserviced community that is underserviced in part because of systemic sin and its remnants, you still have a responsibility to choose the right path. Otherwise, you'll make your difficult situation even more difficult. But nevertheless, the point remains that, uh, that, that Christians can't simply use the, the, the slogan, just preach the gospel, and ignore the real uh, realities that people are facing where Christians can speak and live redemptively. I mean, we do this in so many ways already as Christians. We, 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 we do this when it comes to um, thinking about how we can help help mothers, right, in, in a world where uh, uh, they might be tempted to, uh, to, to harm their child. We think of, of ways where we can uh, help women in crisis. We, we talk about adoption and we do these sorts of things and we think systemically about how to, change laws that will mm-hmm. protect uh, life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and we also need to think carefully about that as it relates to the to the race issue. So what about we'll give you the, the hypothetical, which is not a hypothetical for, for many people. What about you know, I know I know friends and pastors who are in predominantly upper class white neighborhoods. And this is not sort of a you could say an immediate social need uh, in their community, mm. for example. So they're thinking about diversity, but they're thinking, hey, my neighborhood is all people who look just like me, who make about as much money as I do, same size house, drive the same cars. How, how does somebody like that, uh, or maybe in the far opposite, on the opposite end, maybe somebody who's in a predominantly black neighborhood who there's not uh, a lot of quote unquote diversity around. How do you think through yeah. that when you're in a, a sort of non-diverse area of still trying to pursue uh, the revelation call for all nations, tribes, and tongues to to believe the gospel. How do you how do you work through some of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I have to say at least a couple of things. Number one, I would say that churches that are in uh, communities where there's a shared social status or a shared maybe ethnicity is that they should be freed up to 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 reflect their community. They can't become what they are not. You can't you can't force something that isn't your reality. So I would say seek to live redemptively in your community and look for other ways in which you can live out the redemptive story uh, that is beyond simply diversity that relates to ethnicity. Uh, I, I, I think I think one way you can do that would be you know pray for pray for for churches that are in different community contexts, pray for their ministries to advance, look at ways where maybe you can support uh, churches in your city or your community or, or globally who are doing good gospel work and that are trustworthy. Think of ways you can maybe steward resources to help uh, bless those, those ministries. Um, I don't think churches should feel guilty if they don't have uh, a diversity of ethnicities in their communities. Uh, but I think they should, should look, look at embrace who they are embrace whom uh, the the community that they have and then look for ways that they, they can look outside of their own local community and and be a participant in missions for example be a participant in and other ministries in the city or in your community or the state or the nation that that's seeking to bring about gospel-centered unity in christ it's one thing i would say another thing i would say though is is that when we talk about ethnic diversity, I, I think we need to really rethink what we mean by that. I, I think that we we sort of reflexively conflate race with ethnicity right. when we back talk about point, ethnic right? diversity. <laughs> back, so it's back to the point. So that by, by ethnic diversity, we usually mean, well, I'm in an all black community and there are no, there are no whites or, or Asians or Hispanics in my community. Uh, so I can't be ethnically diverse. But again, if ethnicity has has nothing to do fundamentally with skin color, then even if you have people from the same skin complexion in your community, you very likely have different ethnicities there. Um, I know my own in my own genealogy. I mean, my uh, someone in my family did a did a DNA test, and it was quite ethnically diverse. Hmm. I mean. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation represented in my family tree. It's, it's pretty powerful. So, so, for example, the word white, let's just take this as an example. Like that, the word white is a racial category that is not, it's not, uh, it's not a biological reality. It's a social, it's a social fiction, just like, just like other words, like black, right? We say the word black, that's a social construct. I'm a human being, but, but, but the social construct of race labels me black and it labels you white. But here's the reality. If you were to search your DNA tree or your family tree, I would imagine you have uh, ethnicities that are scattered throughout different parts of, 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 the, of the world. And because, because the, the word white does not represent a reality, the word black doesn't represent who I am as a human being. So then um, if you have a congregation that is predominantly white, very likely have uh, people with ethnic uh, with an ethnic heritage that could stretch back to different parts of Europe, different, different parts of Germany, different parts of all over the world. So you, so even though people in the congregation has the same skin complexion, you very likely have different ethnicities. So what I, so one thing I think we need to do is rethink what we mean by ethnic diversity. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has everything to do with uh, the different tongues and tribes and peoples and nations from uh, that, that Jesus died 
to deliver. So if you're in an entirely English speaking context, for example, you probably in that in that in that context have people who share uh, African American heritage, who share different European heritage, who share different Hispanic heritage, uh, different ethnicities, even within that context. But even if you're in an all white context or an all black context, you could have black Haitian, you could have black Caribbean, you could have black black uh, African American. So, so this ethnicity thing is more complex than we want it to be. And I would say that we, sh- we, need, to, we need to do the work of really re-understanding what we mean by ethnic diversity um, and recognize that it's bigger than skin color. Uh, and, uh, let me tell you, a third thing related to this is, is that in my experience, and I could be wrong, but in my own personal experience, I think the social challenge in many respects is much more complex than the, than the, than the racial and ethnic challenge. Mm. So here's what I mean. So I, 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 I know people uh, who feel quite comfortable around a diversity of ethnicities, a diversity of skin colors uh, who are from the same social class. So if you get me in a room, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a middle-class black man with a PhD. So if you get me in a room with, uh, whites with PhDs, Asians with PhDs in, in my area, Hispanic vision, my area, I feel, I feel right at home. But if you put me in a room with uh, maybe lower class people who don't have the same educational uh, background that I have or who don't have the same uh, sort of um, vernacular that I have, then that's, that can be a little bit more complicated and, 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 and challenge me in ways that uh, being the only black person in the room with a bunch of white PhDs would challenge me. I mean, there are many things that I have in common with, with white PhDs. I have a PhD. Uh, so, so my point would be, my point is to say that, is that when we think about this, this redemptive diversity, it's not only about the ethnic piece, it's also about the social piece. Because I, again, I, I know blacks and whites and, and Asians and Hispanics who can do just fine when they are in the room with people or doing life with people who share their social status. But the moment you start talking about uh, doing life with people who are poor and uneducated, that's where the, that's where the pushback will come. And so the vision that I'm trying to outline in my book, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity includes every tongue and tribe and people and nation that Jesus has come to redeem those tongues and tribes and peoples and nations. And that God in Christ works to unify a diversity of ethnicities, but also a diversity of classes of people so that we are, we are transformed and we're one in Christ without eradicating our ethnic identities and without eradicating our, our social statuses. Um, in Christ Jesus, we're called upon to love one another. I think that's what Galatians 3.28 is getting at when it talks about no Jew, Gentile, no female, no male, female, no slave, free, we're all one in Christ. He's not denying that there are real, clear, social, and gender, and ethnic distinctions. He's making the point that in Christ Jesus, those statuses don't, don't uh, in, in society, don't give us status amongst the people of God in terms of who, who, who are the people of God, who are not the people of God. But in Christ Jesus, we're transformed as his people by the spirit to love one another, even in our our ethnic differences and our and our social statuses. Yeah, that's really helpful. It does seem like, you know, obviously a lot of the the racial divide, you know, that's the sort of social reality of where we live um, is not just skin color, but socioeconomic. Right. Because of systemic things we've talked about already. So that's like a, a double built in, you know, uh, uh, separation already, but but you mentioned that, and I was thinking again about where I'm at in the middle of cornfields and in the Midwest. You know, um, we're in a, a university town. We have about four thousand people in the university. Then when students show up, it doubles. We have about forty five hundred students on campus, so our town doubles mm. when students are here. And um, there is a very I'm, I'm learning mm. in my three years here. There's a very clear undercurrent of uh, the university versus the town. You know, it's like the blue collar. Mm. The blue collar mm, versus mm. the sort of highly educated um, and mm. all of the sort of things that go into that. And our local church feels that tension a lot. And we have very few skin color differences in our church. Very, very, very few. Uh, and yet yeah. we have significant class differences, uh, economic differences, yes. even cultural differences because of a blue collar versus a highly educated. So that's, that's a good encouragement, I think, too, for churches to think, 
you know, I have yes. friends who are white pastors who say, well, I wish there were more black people in our town so we could have them come to our church. And it's like, well, that's a, that's a very short-sighted, shallow way of viewing it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's powerful, isn't it? I mean, my goodness. Jesus, he goes to Zacchaeus, who has some kind of prominence, it seems, as a tax collector. I know he would have been hated and despised by certain people from his own community, but he has, he has some power. I mean, he has some he has some social capital, but Jesus will say, hey, you know, salvation has come to your house today. But then Jesus will also spend time hanging out with with fishermen and farmers and he'll spend time hanging out with um, tax collectors and sinners, uh, people who are who are morally uh, uh, corrupt. And he'll he'll spend time uh, with people in all different walks of life. Now, of course, most of his ministry, as you know, is for for the Jews, but we get glimpses along the way, the Syrophoenician woman and other places where he's 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 stepping over into areas of ministry that are are are, are shattering sort of the cultural expectations. Uh, John four, the woman at the well, I think is one of those examples with the Samaritan. It's not only a not only an, an ethnic issue, but it's also a geographic issue that that he's dealing with, and it's a class issue. It seems to me as well that he's dealing with, and so for me. As a Christian, I think God's redemptive vision in Christ is much is so much bigger and better than we typically think. It's it's not just about getting different people together in a room. It's about transforming uh, different tongues and tribes and peoples and nations and and different classes of people in Christ, so that we can love one another. And and brother, I tell you, you know, I've been a Christian for twenty six years. And, and to me, when you see people from different ethnicities, yes, but from different classes as well, who love one another because they love Jesus, man, that is a great apologetic for the gospel, that, that you, you have no reason to expect people who are in poverty or middle class uh, or highly educated or, 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 or not highly educated, you have no reason for them to have community with each other or to have to do life with one another other than the fact that in Christ Jesus, they see each other as fully human and as transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's a beautiful picture of, of this redemptive kingdom diversity that I'm, that I'm talking about. I, I make it, I try to make it clear. I'm not talking about the multi-ethnic church in my book. I'm all of, I'm I'm pro multi-ethnic church. I'm I'm in a church that is working and striving to be intentionally multi-ethnic. But you can work out redemptive kingdom diversity even if your church has no chance at being multi-ethnic in the sense that you have different skin colors. But you can work out redemptive kingdom diversity by living redemptively wherever you are in the communities that you uh, live in in the ordinary rhythms of life by the power of the Spirit, and that's hopeful. Because not everybody is going to be in a multi-ethnic church. Everybody's going to be in a congregation where you have opportunities to, to see the, the skin color diversity. But everybody, every Christian is in a congregation where they can live redemptively where they're situated with people that, quite frankly, are hard to, to live with because of our sin and because of all the complexities that we bring to, to our own humanity. Yeah. All right, let's, let's finish up here. What are maybe two or three just big talking points, big ideas that get thrown around that are talked about in this conversation. I mean, I think you've, you've, you've already touched on a lot of them today, but a couple of things you say, man, when we have these conversations in the church. I mean, there's, you know, however many buzzwords you want to come up with in different ways that we find ways to, to cause division when we should be causing unity when it comes to ethnicity and race and things like that. So what are a couple of things you'd say like, Hey, this just needs to die. Let's just, let's stop using mm. this word or let's stop making mm. this claim. And let's say if, if we can do that, we'll actually make a lot more progress. What, what would be maybe one or two things you can think of that are that are really sticking mm. points that don't need to be? Mm. Man, that's a good question. That's a hard question. I mean, there's so many so many buzzwords that that are out there. I, I, let me answer the question this way. I think one of the fundamental things we need to do uh, as Christians in this conversation is recognize that we need each other. Like one of the things I think needs to die is this we versus them mentality or this, this we against everybody who disagrees with us mentality. This whole, this whole posture of either you're fully with me or against me, 
I think that needs to to die if we want to make any progress. I'm 44 years old, and I'm convinced that uh, one of the things we need to do as believers is stop making everybody our in, stop making faithful brothers and sisters in Christ our enemies because they might disagree with a nuance here or a nuance there. So I'm I'm really I'm really keen on the work that Dr. George Yancey at Baylor, African American sociologist, that he's done. Called um, he wrote a book, a recent multiple books, but a recent book he wrote was uh, Beyond Ethnic Division, where he makes the argument that that the 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 colorblind path, though it has good intentions, that's not really going to take us where we want to go as believers uh, in order to build, sustain, sort of change. And then the and then the hardline secular anti-racism path. Uh, that's not going to take us to where we want to go. Uh, the the colorblindness path, although with good intentions, it tends to want to ignore the the realities that we uh, have because of race. And then on the other hand, the secular anti-racism path tends to want to silence whites and not uh, listen to to their contributions. And what George is arguing in his book is that we need to we need to recognize, and this is what I'm trying to argue as well, is that we need to recognize that we need every tongue, tribe, people, and nation at the table, and we need to listen to one another. And we're not going to always agree, but that's okay. The goal of redemptive kingdom diversity is not agreement. I think I think a goal is is unified, spirit empowered love that models for the world the the beautiful picture of redemption that Jesus has accomplished for us and invites the world into that reality by faith in Jesus so that we can have sustained change in the real world. So I would say one of the things that needs to die is, is this whole we versus them mentality, and we need to work together and listen to to one another. Uh, We won't all agree on method. We won't all agree on nuance, but we can all agree, hey, we want our potholes fixed in our communities. So what can we do? How can we listen to each other and work together to fix those potholes. Uh, so that's what I would say. Listen well. Have a conversation. Stop the accusations. Stop the stop the bullying. Stop the, uh, the, the the distorting faithful brothers and sisters beyond recognition. Stop the name calling. And I and I'm talking to myself when I say this. I'm, it's not it's not you all stop this and I'm doing it right. It's no. I'm part of the problem, and I want to be part of the solution. And and the and the and the best solution that we have, I think, in Christ Jesus is the supernatural power of the Spirit, and we have the Word of God and the, and the people of God uh, that we can listen to, and we have common grace, and we have common sense that we can work together to employ to to uh, create long term, sustained, redemptive change. And um, let's stop let's stop trying to to stoke up. Uh, division, but let's try to work toward redemptive change, not ignoring the problem, but let's also talk about the hope and and create a pathway by which we together can collectively seek real redemptive change in Christ Jesus that will last. Common grace That's and what common I sense. Say. Yeah, common grace and common sense. I like that. That's a good. Uh, we put that on a t-shirt yeah. somewhere. I think that'll work. <laughs> All right. Well, man, thanks so much for this conversation. It's uh, encouraging, helpful, edifying. I hope that people listening, especially your last call there. I mean, I, I think there's going to be people listening who are going to be like, ah, ah. Uh, 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 you know all these uh, you may use a word or a phrase I don't like but I think the call at the end to you know be able to have nuance and have disagreement with one another while loving one another like if we don't listen to each other we're not going to get anywhere right so I think that's a that's a really good good word to end on so thanks so much for doing it thanks for taking some time with me oh thank you appreciate it Brandon